Hello, fellow kids, and welcome to episode Z of Hello, Fellow Kids. We have reached the end of the alphabet, because we are both adults who know that there are 26 letters in the alphabet. You know what? I don't like you for saying that. <laughs> we all get confused sometimes. <laughs> well, I mean, to be fair, I think we have a couple more letters than we need. Like, the letter C is pretty useless on its own because it's just filling the role that K and S can do. If you're talking about, like, CH, like CH, we should just have a different symbol for that entirely. Yeah. So, if anybody can't tell based on the difference in our audio, we are recording remotely because we are good people who uh, don't go out and make uh, social calls during a government-mandated stay-at-home situation. Yeah, um, I went to the protest first today, and then I did this episode. <laughs> <laughs> did you bring one of the signs that says, My Body, My Choice, with a no sign over the mask? No, I put, like, I, I had the sign that said, I want my hair cut. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so, so then I'm like, geez, she really does need a haircut. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we couldn't have planned this better if we tried to <laughs> read this particular Fable Haven now. But it wasn't intention. Okay, so it's a Fable Haven grip of the shadow plague. It's about a plague. <laughs> and I was, we'd been putting off reading this for so long. And then I finally was reading the back of it before I started reading. And I'm like, oh, no. I think we had talked about doing this like two or three months ago. Yeah. And then it just was... so happened with all of our other selections <laughs> that this is what we're releasing in May when most people aren't able to uh, go and do anything. Wasn't this supposed to be our March book at one time? It was, yeah, it was supposed to be March. Yeah. Not that that would have been much better. So, Fablehaven Grip at the Shadow Plague, it was originally supposed to be my turn to do the synopses, but uh, Mara was pretty proud of hers, and I was like just kind of alright with mine, so we're going to go ahead and let her uh, shine with that. And I think you did the Fablehaven last time anyway, probably. and I think we agreed that uh, it'd probably be better to alternate on that. I don't, I don't know if we're going to get under two hours for this one. I try really hard to keep our episodes between 60 and 120 minutes. And Fablehaven 2, I struggled to get to, I think it was like one hour, 58 minutes. Oh, wow. So uh, what did you think of it? You know what? This would have been a five-star book, except I had the same problem I had last time of like, who's going to be the backstabber in this book? So I was tense about that. And then also it just being about a plague kind of brought my fun down quite right. a bit. So otherwise, this would be like a four and a half, five star book, and it's just four for me, right? Which is totally not the book's fault. It's just my mentality going into it. I think that this probably is my least favorite of the Fablehaven books so far. Um, not that I dislike it; they're all still like solid four to four and a half stars. Yes. Um, just compared to the others, I felt that this one, I felt that with with the exception of a couple elements of it, you could remove a lot of it and i wouldn't feel like we have gained a lot between the end of book two and the end of book three because the end of book two ends on such a crazy twist cliffhanger where it throws everything that you thought you knew out the window and i don't feel like this has really pushed that part of the story forward too much it's definitely brought in other elements talking about the different artifacts and things like that but i didn't feel as much of a push where i was like i need book four right now but I still, I mean, it starts off delightful because the best characters are on page, like, <laughs> two. Yes. 
there's there's definitely still a ton of fun and he is i at one point i do mention i forget how i phrased it i'll mention when i get to it but he is so so good at making sure every element matters even if it doesn't matter between multiple books everything at least matters for this book and you see things come back around you see payoff so frequently with every element that he puts in he's a very deliberate writer in that regard and that's always really nice to see yeah not a not a word is wasted and if something's happening on on the page i've learned to be like okay it's probably gonna mean something later i need to be curious i need to remember that so that's that's always really really good to see from especially from somebody that's trying that that's writing a big series like this it's really nice to know that you can trust them to put things in place that will come back around and not just be like I mean, I guess that's cool, but listen, you are already making me read like 2,000 pages to get your whole story. Did we really have to put that in there? Uh, <laughs> he doesn't do that to you for the most part, so. Yeah, there's no Tom Bombadil singing songs, so okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, are we ready to start? Yeah. Uh, chapter one, The Nipsies. It's been a few months since the end of the previous book, so it's still summer. Seth's sneaking off into the woods, and I'm getting irritated, but he's on a secret mission to meet my favorite satyrs, Doran and Newell, so that's okay. Seth's meeting the satyrs because they're interested in setting up a human and satyr coalition across all the magical creature preserves. Just kidding! Their portable TVs need more D-cell batteries. Come on now. Uh, they're able to pay Seth easy money, but they need his and Hugo the Gollum's assistance in obtaining said easy money. Uh, creatures called Nipsies live in a nearby hill, and they collect shiny things to build with. They're kind of like brownies, but very much their own thing. Uh, Seth is skeptical of taking anything from them, remembering all too well how these two assholes stole Nero the Troll's gold to pay him uh, last time. They reassure him that the Nipsies are very tiny folk with no supernatural abilities. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Hugo carries them to the hill where venomous vegetation come to life and strike at Hugo. He's clay. He's fine. Turns out the Nipsies are annoyed with Doran and Newell's greed. That's why they've booby-trapped the area. A large rock coated in icky slime uh, blocks the entrance, and Hugo moves it like it ain't no fang and keeps the slime at bay so they can get inside. There's gold in them, thar hills. Uh, the Nipsies have seven beautiful kingdoms with delicately carved little palaces, homes, shops, and gardens, and I could spend forever looking at everything, but we've got a plot to move along. Uh, the Nipsies are so little, they need a megaphone to speak to the Satyrs and Seth. They apologize for the traps, but big creatures keep stomping in demanding gold, you see. Oh, and now's not a good time since there's kind of a big war on right now. But if you help us against the conquering ships on their way now as we speak, we'll reward you handsomely. It's super weird to see Nipsies at war, and uh, our friends head over to the douche kingdom to see what's what. Uh, the little guys there look weird, all pale and fangy, and they declare that they've learned the art of pillaging from Newell and Doran themselves. We learned it from watching you. Also, help us end this war, and you'll be handsomely rewarded. Uh, the Satyrs don't want to get involved, and they BS about having an appointment until Seth tells them to cut the shit and fix this. So uh, they pillage the douche kingdom, uh, the douche kingdom's treasury, sorry, and grab all the attacking boats, snapping off their masts. They smash up all the war machines, too, and scoop up the troops to place back in their own kingdoms. They're careful not to kill, lest they lose the magical protection of Fablehaven. The Nipsies are pleased with this turn of events, and they offer their treasury to the satyrs, who happily take and then head out, excited for all the TV they're going to watch. 
I was already very excited for you by the time we got to page three. <laughs> so I was like, all right, cool. Mara's going to be on board from the start. That's very good. We, we have your favorite characters here, but we also have my favorite character, which is Hugo the Golem, which is just him t- trying to talk. Uh, where they're like, Hugo, are you willing to help us visit the Nipsies? Hugo held up an earthen hand, the thumb and forefinger almost touching. He gave a slight nod because he's trying to explain that he knows the Nipsies are the real small ones. And it's so cute. <laughs> I thought he was making an OK sign. Like, yeah, I'm I'm with this plan. I think he's trying to do the, they're so small, I can, just that big. Just between those two. Um, I like the idea of him, like, okay. <laughs> it's like, are you cool be, with seeing the Nipsey? That would be in line with his character, yes. too. <laughs> yes. I think that the Nipsey kingdoms are really cool, how they're, uh, I'm kind of picturing kind of like how Gondor in Lord of the Rings is kind of all carved yeah. into the one sort of, like, tiered sort of shape but i'm picturing that around the inside of this big cavern and it's yeah it's really cool <laughs> nipsies have no king nipsies need no king <laughs> the friggin' statues of doran and New- newell is <laughs> <laughs> and they of course just they have an appointment elsewhere yeah, no, like I like that. That comes up again later, and it's like, why do they always do that? Yeah. <laughs> and I like how Seth like is very aware that that is not true. Of course, <laughs> it's not true. These guys don't have appointments. When they when they take down the attacking kingdom by just like lifting the ships out of the water <laughs> and just moving stuff around, it's like, nope, you're done now. <laughs> you can't play nice. I'm taking away your toys. It was it was really fun that since we're starting in the same summer, we don't need to have any sort of like easing you back into fairyland sort of situation. It can just be like, all right, and this is one of the things that Seth just deals with while he's here. Yeah. Um, so it was really nice to just hop back into it. Yeah, it was a good way yeah. to start it. I was disappointed with the last one when it started at them at school, where I was like, no, go to Fablehaven. <laughs> so yeah, I liked this where it was just at. Fablehaven, except when it wasn't. No spoilers for the thing I'm about to spoil in a bit. Alright, chapter two, Reunion. Uh, Warren and Tanu, friends of the Sorensen clan and Knights of the Dawn, uh, have been traveling all summer, following up on the accusations against the Sphinx uh, of actually working for the Society in the Evening Star. In addition, the Brazilian preserve has fallen, which is bad, since important artifacts are kept at these places, in addition to fantastic beasts, and they shouldn't be in the hands of people hell-bent on destruction. Also bad, they can't find the fairy trader Maddox, who I'm guessing knows the locations of all the preserves. While waiting for our traveling heroes, Grandma and Grandpa Sorensen discuss with the kids what the heck they're going to do about their parents. Mom and Dad have been antsy about getting their kids back. Why? What parent wouldn't love a kid-free summer? Weirdos. Uh, to the point that they invited the parents up so Tanu could hypnotize them into letting the kids stay a little longer. They've also dropped huge hints as to what kind of joint Fablehaven is, but the parents are so full of unbelief, nothing sunk in. Also... Hey, turns out the Larson grandparents who asphyxiated to death prior to the first book knew all about magical beasts, too. Uh, in fact, they hooked up the mom and dad because uh, they all ran in the same circle. But all they seem to do is reinforce each other's unbelief. Kendra asks if the Larson's death was really accidental. And Grandma says, yeah, but I don't know. Uh, finally, uh, Tanu and Warren return. 
Tanu's arms in a sling from his hasty escape from the Brazilian preserve from the scary-ass demon that was there running amok. Uh, before he had to take off, he was able to, t- to deliver a teleporter bathtub with coded instructions should Maddox need it. The kids are like, um... Basically, there's two bathtubs in two locations. One's in Brazil now, the other's in the attic. Not in the section housing Seth and Kendra's bedroom, but in the section that houses all the cool weaponry. Someone can hop into one and end up in the other one, but they need someone to help them out of the tub. They can't just climb out on their own. I have a feeling that we should put a pin in this. Uh, meanwhile, Warren's been up to some cool stuff, too, he'll have you know. He's been trying to find all five of the preserves but he can't find the elusive fifth one. So all they know are Fablehaven, Legend Asylum, Myth Retreat, and Parable Shelter. I'm kidding, but this is a good joke, and I actually consulted a thesaurus for it. (laughs) (laughs) Also, he's been investigating the origins of the Sphinx and keeps hearing conflicting stories that lead to dead ends. He suspects the Sphinx himself made up these rumors, kind of like the Joker and the Dark Knight having a different story explaining his messed up face. Anyway, uh, good job, Warren. Oh, but he has some news. All the Knights of the Dawn are getting called in for a big, important meeting, and the Sphinx is insisting that Kendra come along, too. He wants her to join up. Grandma and Grandpa are like, um, no, but they all discuss it and realize that it'll look really suspicious if they don't comply. They'll basically be letting the Sphinx know that they don't trust him. Plus, if she's supposed to be under his protection, it would look really bad if anything should happen to her. Reluctantly, they decide to let her go, since she'll have Warren, Coulter, and Tanu with her. All this time, I've been impressed with Seth's restraint at not piping up about wanting to go, too. But within the last few lines of the last page of the chapter, he remembers to be the little brother and asks where his invitation is. Ugh. I really enjoy the image of them trying to hint increasingly more directly at what Fablehaven actually is to the parents and the parents somehow just not noticing. Like <laughs> they have like I'm imagining them just like having like a satyr like walk through the yard right next to them and they're just like Oh look at the cute goat. <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> And Doran's like, Who are you calling a goat? Excuse me, sir <laughs> And they're just like bad to you too. Oh, isn't he cute? Go get him a sugar lump. And he's like, okay, I'm a goat if I get a sugar lump. (laughs) Do you have any batteries? Batteries. (laughs) So let's see. Australia, Brazil, Arizona, and then Connecticut is Fablehaven. Uh, They're trying to figure out the location of the fifth. And I had an idea that's a bad idea, I think, once I started thinking more about it. So, like, the sanctuaries are designed so that, like, if you, basically, if you don't know what's there or you're not, told it's there by somebody who already does the magic kind of distracts you away from it i thought it would be really interesting if one of the secret uh sanctuaries was inside a real sanctuary but just (laughs) with so much additional magic that they don't even recognize that they're missing part of their own sanctuary like right in the middle where the secret sanctuary is yo dog i heard you like sanctuary (laughs) put a sanctuary in your sanctuary I was thinking Antarctica, because there's like, there should be cold, uh, magical creature beings and stuff, and that would be the best place for them. Yeah. Better than North Pole. One of the poles is what I think it is. Uh, Why did America get to have two? Come on. We're very big. And there's lots of, um, I'm surprised they don't have it like out in Wyoming or something where no one is. Right. (laughs) We should put this in Connecticut. It's like, 
why? So they can have a white party every summer? What do you mean? Uh, we just went ahead and made uh, both Dakotas the sanctuary. No one's going to notice anyways. <laughs> I get what you're saying about like the climates, but there's nothing represented at all for Europe and Asia, and I think that's really interesting. And Africa. Uh, it's it's three in the Americas and then one in Australia. Maybe that's where the, like, the seven sanctuaries are, so they don't get... Because there's the seven sanctuaries that's totally super-duper secret. Ah, more yes. secret than the preserves. Right. So maybe then, that's where those are. Yeah. So it's like it's like these are like these are like your rare ones, but then the other ones are like your holographics. Sure. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Chapter three: Sharing Discoveries. Kendra's reading the old caretaker diaries when Seth comes in and gives her shit about being a book-reading nerd. Kendra doesn't really rise to the bait and argue back, so Seth starts teasing about having a secret about the Nipsies until Kendra shouts, Grandpa, Seth has a secret about the Nipsies, which is the best older sister move ever. <laughs> <laughs> Seth tells Grandpa about the changed state of the Nipsies and how they said that they serve a new master now. Grandpa's disappointed that Seth's been going behind his back doing stupid shit still, even after everything they've already been through. When Seth gets defensive and says that he's stuck to paths in areas he's familiar with, Grandpa's like, how can I trust you with bigger things which come with more complicated rules when you can't even follow a simple one like stay in the yard? This is a revelation to Seth, who thinks rules are there to be buzzkills. He reminds me of the kids I knew in school who were astonished to discover that I hate school. They thought I did schoolwork and studied for tests because I liked it. But really, it just helps you get through school faster and keeps teachers from nagging you. Magic. Anyway, Seth is confined to the house for the next three days, and he has to return the Nipsey gold, and for the rest of the summer, he can't leave the house unaccompanied. Meanwhile, Kendra's son bathes in the yard, eavesdropping on the fairies who gossip in the birdbath. The two there are throwing shade at each other, and it's wonderfully bitchy. One brags that the bracelet she's wearing was made by Kendra, it wasn't, and that she received it after fighting by Kendra's side against Muriel and Bathmat during book one. Oh, but you weren't there, right? You were an imp at the time. Oh, the shade, the realness. The other fairy says that the darkness has its advantages, but the first fairy's like, sure, if you want to be uggo. And when the other fairy says that it's possible to go dark and retain your beauty, the first fairy abruptly ends the conversation and flies away. Hmm, interessante. Kendra goes back to the house just as Coulter and Tanu return from checking up on the Nipsies. It was just as Seth said, and the dark Nipsies had been gearing up for battle once more. They'd seen a small dark figure near the mound, but they'd lost it when it had run off. They suspect it was a fallen dwarf. The Sorensons are at a loss because Nipsies don't fall and neither do dwarves. What the F is going on? Kendra repeats the fairy's conversation since it seems pertinent to this discussion. Their first instinct is to get the Sphinx's advice and uh, figure they still should since friend or foe, he still gave pretty solid advice. When Grandpa Sorensen leaves to make calls, Tanu pulls Seth aside and tells him that he found evidence at the Nipsey Hill that Hugo had been there. Tanu sternly tells him that Hugo isn't a plaything to help him with stupid crap. Seth pleads for him not to tell Grandpa, and Tanu agrees, since uh, Seth's in enough trouble. Tanu asks Kendra if she can keep quiet as well, and since she's fulfilled her daily quota of narking, she's all good. Kendra's play to be like, Grandpa, Seth has something to tell you, was also, like, delightful. Yes. Uh, I thought that was great. It cuts through a lot of the ways that how much of the drama is made just because characters aren't talking to each other. Right, yeah. Um, and it just cuts through that. And I, 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 love I find that. that really refreshing. 
that is a trope I really despise where well, everything that happens could have been avoided if people would have had a conversation. And it's a conversation that people would, are likely to have had. So it's like, why aren't you talking about this? And then none of this would have happened. Nothing wrecks a story for me more than that kind of thing. Yeah. We started off the series with Bathmat. Yes. Um, and now we have a new one introduced who I referred to as Granola. <laughs> um, oh, Growloss. That's yeah. right. You can go ahead and call him Granola. I keep so calling Bathmat Bathmat. The revelation for Seth trying to figure out the whole rules thing was great. That's kind of just how rules work for the most part. So I was like, yeah, and- this is astonishing to you. <laughs> and your point your point about the school thing is so true. It's like, if you don't like school that much, why are you doing everything in your power to make sure you have to go to more school? Right. You want to come back and do it over the summer? I don't. Yeah. I still I still have nightmares about having to be in school. I have nightmares that I have my college degree, but not my high school diploma. Oh, my God. I had something similar, but it, I uh, had to repeat uh, fifth grade P.E. That was it. Just P.E. in fifth grade. And I was just like, but I did it the first time. (laughs) (laughs) I've already exercised in this life. She said we had to have it with the original teacher. And I was just like, I don't even know if he's still alive. He was in his 40s back then, and it's been a long time. Chapter 4, New Nights. Kendra, Coulter, Warren, and Tanu fly to the gathering in Atlanta, and they're picked up at the airport by a limousine. The meeting's at a swanky mansion owned by fairy traders, Wesley and Marion Fairbanks. On the way there, Kendra is advised to not give out any personal information, like how we were all advised forever ago about going on the internet. She's so unnerved by everything that she uh, has a stress dream about getting lost at a carnival where strangers eat her cotton candy. Rude! When they're close to the house, they put on masks and robes, and then they go in uh, disguised to check in. They're split up briefly to have their identities confirmed, and then Kendra's sent to a room with the other novices. Warren comes with her, acting as guardian. In the room with the novices is a captain who doesn't remove their mask, and a lieutenant named Dugan, who turns out to be Maddox's brother. Dugan has the novices take off their masks, revealing a teenage boy named Gavin, who pretty instantly falls in love with Kendra, and a little old lady named Estelle, because of course, that's her name. (laughs) There are only, like, three old lady names. There's Estelle and um, Esther. What's something else? I don't know. The the four golden girls. (laughs) Okay. Uh, They're invited to ask questions, and Gavin reveals that he has a stutter as he gives the captain shit for staying masked. The captain doesn't get too pressed, but he explains that it's a security issue. If the society knew who the captains are, they could use them to take out all the knights under them. To my immense relief, Gavin shuts up. So the novices swear their oath, and that's it. Talk amongst yourselves before attending the big gathering. Estelle is an archivist and researcher, and Gavin's the secret son of a knight who died Christmas Day at the sanctuary in the Himalayas. Uh, Warren and Dugan knew his dad, and they offer condolences. They'd heard rumors about his dad, Chuck, raising a kid, and he's taken after his old man so well, they already got a mission planned out for Kendra and Gavin. Warren's not too keen on this, but Dugan promises to keep him in the loop because this ish is important. And now, mess everyone, it's time for the gathering. So you mentioned that for the second book, the fact that we started at school was kind of a bummer because you wanted to see more of the Fablehaven stuff. Yeah. Um, with this, with them going to this meeting, it was kind of it's kind of nice to see 
uh, like Tanu and, and stuff at least a little bit somewhere else. Um, I thought that was, I always think that that's fun because it, it's kind of like when I talked about the Penderwicks, how it's like you get to see them on vacation and then you get to see them in their natural environment. So this is kind of, it's like a different aspect of them just a little bit, not hugely because they're still doing fable related work. But yes, the the Fairbanks, the uh, the collectors and traders of of fine fairies the world over, <laughs> and I I think the husband is like always hoping that he can be a knight. Yeah, the them using him to use his like house and stuff is very much like everyone pretending to like the kid who has the pool during the summer. Right. <laughs> like yeah, sure you can maybe you can be in our secret club someday if you let us use your pool. Gee. <laughs> <laughs> I liked what you said about the um, don't give out your information on the internet because you should never give out personal information on the internet unless there's like an ad on Facebook that's like which member of Cheers are you in which case you should list all of your personal information so that they can collect it and then just give you an arbitrary quiz response yeah uh, yeah or like upload 18 pictures of yourself and we'll tell you which painting you kind of look like a little bit. Post a picture of yourself like 10 years ago and a picture of yourself now so our facial recognition software can get really, really good. We'll call it Throwback Thursday. <laughs> yeah, there's a, um, it was my cousin's birthday a few months ago and uh, uh, my uncle had a Google slideshow going of pictures of my cousin and it face recognized me in the background like, 20 feet further away with my head turned um, and I don't even have any social media that I could cross-reference that with that's kind of scary so Google just knows everything always I don't I don't like it yeah nah that was all I had for that chapter <laughs> okay <laughs> right. I have a lot more later on I promise okay cool um, chapter five first assignment after awkwardly finding seats out in the crowd uh, the captain comes out on stage and makes a quick speech. Shit's getting real, and preserves are falling at a frequent, at so frequent a rate that they'll be down to zero in about two decades. Uh, the Society of the Evening Star has successfully infiltrated the Brotherhood, and they could even be in this room right now. Pause for horrified gasps. <laughs> All of the murmurs. <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't like this. I don't like this at all. Uh, he quickly reassures the gathering um, that the tra the traitor. I almost read it as tractor. I'm trying to read my handwriting. <laughs> the tractor. <laughs> Look out for the tractor. <laughs> Just takes out the room. We couldn't tell it was a tractor because it had a mask on. <laughs> and Kendra's like, that's just stupid. Okay, he quickly reassures the gathering that uh, the traitor they knew about for sure has been apprehended, see book two, and the 17 knights with iffy ties have been laid off. He reads off the names so everyone can avoid these guys, then continues by telling them that now's the time for more secrecy, caution, and loyalty. Then he goes on to say that anyone with information about the preserves needs to come forward and tell it. Um, this seems sketchy to me, until he points out that the society's been getting this information easily, and it's time for the Brotherhood to take a more active role in defending these preserves. Speech over. Great. Everyone starts milling around, and Kendra ducks outside for some air. She ends up in a garden of fairies who look at their reflections in her mask and snark on one another's appearance until Kendra tells them to chill out. They hear her words in their language, and they demand she take her mask off. When she does, they fangirl out over her, saying she's glowing in a way that only fairies can see, and this means Kendra's the queen's handmaiden. This is news to Kendra, 
but no one's been very kind like her in a thousand years, so it's not like she's got a handy guidebook to consult as needed. Uh, the fairies touch her face and get all bright, too, and it's visible on them, so they have to disperse it amongst themselves so as not to raise any suspicions. They do that by kissing, of course. Ah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Kendra talks with the fairies for a while to get information, but they really don't have anything to share since mortal business is pretty boring. You know, fair. But they say that they'll at least attempt to get info concerning the identity of the captain, and they promise to keep Kendra's fairy-struck status a secret. Kendra goes back inside. It's time for her to receive her first assignment. Warren takes her back to Dugan in a private room. The mission, go to Lost Mesa, the preserve in Arizona. The society already knows all about it, and the Brotherhood team sent in, uh, they're already in trouble. This is a rescue mission where they have to complete the original objective as well which is to retrieve the artifact hidden there and have Kendra's magic hands reactivate it. I mean, pretty standard first mission, right? Oh, and the only other person going besides Dugan and Kendra is the new kid, Gavin. Warren's like, wow, yeah, no. He demands to know <laughs> He demands to know if the captain is the Sphinx, and Dugan won't really answer. He also doesn't like the idea of reactivating the artifact, because even if they do use its powers to better conceal it, which barely makes any sense. I'm with Warren on this. He insists on coming along, and if it's all a huge problem, Kendra will drop out of the Brotherhood. Dugan goes to confer with the captain, and Warren and Kendra have a whispered conference. Warren doesn't like that they're looking for an artifact so soon after the last one, and it's making his spidey senses tingle. He's planning on going along and taking the artifact himself, since no one person should have all the knowledge. He'll try not to get her in trouble as well, but her family will know where she is so she'll be able to get home. Kendra's not crazy about any of this, me neither, but it's better than the alternative. The society getting all the artifacts and opening the demon prison Zizix, thereby ending the world. So she agrees to go along. Dugan finally returns and says the captain's cool with Warren coming along, and they leave for Arizona in the morning. Ugh, that's way too much travel in a short amount of time. Okay, so... If Warren hides this other artifact himself, that means he has been in direct contact with at least two of the artifacts, right? Yes. So doesn't that mean that he is himself consolidating that information? Yes, I, I, that's how I felt. And I was like, uh... <laughs> I, I started to become more and more suspicious of him because of that. Yeah, me too. Um, I definitely feel like he makes a lot of good decisions as far as wanting to be there to like protect people and stuff. But at the same time, he also just conveniently is positioning himself in a way where he is achieving the same thing he's trying to prevent the Sphinx from doing. Yeah. Which was definitely setting some stuff off for me. Yeah, that, that's why I was tense the whole rest of the book thinking Warren was going to screw everyone over. Uh, Gavin says, this is going back to the start here, uh, but Gavin says, uh, I thought for sure I'd be the youngest knight, and then pretty much the first person I met has me beat by two years. Maybe it'll turn out that the captain is just a freakishly tall third grader, and I was like, hey, he's actually three babies in a trench coat. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know the Sphinx keeps asking for diaper now? What does that mean? <laughs> Is that the name of one of the artifacts? It's the diaper now. We have to get it. He said it's at the mommy preserve. Where's mommy? <laughs> um, basically, the back half of that chapter was me just being like, hmm, this is all suspicious. All people here are suspicious. Everybody is one big suspicion. Yeah, it's like Jamie Kennedy. All right. <laughs> it's like Jamie Kennedy and Scream. Everyone's a suspect. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I just kept thinking, like, all through this, and it didn't help my anxiety level. 
right? <laughs> I was tempted to uh, to pull a U and look up uh, more information to ease my anxieties about it. I resisted, but I definitely... Now I better know how you feel when it becomes so tense that it's almost hard to enjoy the book, because yeah. like I, I just... I'm waiting for it. I know it's coming somewhere. Yeah, I, I said they're like, I, got, I really want everything to be okay, and then I read ahead or whatever, and I'm like, okay, now I can better enjoy what I'm going through right now, as long as I know it all turns out okay. And uh, I didn't do that with this one, but I did accidentally spoil myself by going like flipping through and going, oh, how many pages are in this chapter? And then saw a character name saying something, and I was like, oh, no, <laughs> whoops. <laughs> okay, uh, chapter six. Plague. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Seth is out in the yard playing baseball with Mandango, when suddenly Mandango <laughs> rushes at him and carries him to the house. At first, Seth thinks Mandango's gone evil again, but nope, it's the local fairy population who are evil now, all dark and withering plants as they go. Safely inside, Seth tells Grandpa what's going on, and Grandpa assumes Seth has riled them up again uh, until he gets a good look. Uh, nope, they're just like the Nipsies now. More alarming, they're dark creatures, but they still have access to the yard and the house. Um, he realizes that Dale, Coulter, and Tanu are still out on the preserve. Uh, Coulter and Tanu have Hugo with them, so Grandpa sends Mandango to retrieve Dale from the barn. Uh, Grandma's out shopping, so Grandpa goes to call her and warn her to be careful when she comes home, and he has Seth keep watch at the windows. Unable to attack anyone, the fairies have drifted away. Seth gets bored and risks going outside. Ugh! and is tempted to run off now that he's unsupervised. Ah! But he's eventually talks himself out of such dumbassery. Suddenly, from the woods comes the ghostly form of Tanu. At first, Seth is worried he's dead, but then he remembers that Tanu has a potion that can turn a person gaseous if they drink it. Inside the house, they ask Tanu yes or no questions until Mandango returns with Dale, who's confused about being abducted by a giant limberjack and assumes something's wrong. So they all grab some ice water until Tanu finally goes back to solid form. Uh, Tanu tells them that he and Coulter were scouting for a new location to place the good Nipsies when they were attacked by the dark fairies. Tanu took his potion and they sent Hugo away since he was taking fairy damage but not really inflicting any damage on them. Uh, the dark fairies were battling the light fairies and they were uh, the dark fairies started converting the light fairies. Then Coulter got surrounded by them and vanished. Grandpa's distraught at this news and decides that he needs to step down as keeper since way too much shit's been going wrong lately. They eventually talk him down and he decides that they need to go talk to Vanessa and see if she knows anything. The gang takes a man-sized bird and puts it into the quiet box and out comes Vanessa, pretty smug and pretty pretty after being shut up in a box for six weeks. She's not at all shocked that something's gone down at Fablehaven or that Kendra isn't there. See, the Sphinx got the artifact kept there, and he had the person kept in the quiet box released, so he's done with this place. Uh, so he's going to let it all burn to the ground, all except Kendra, who still has useful abilities. Uh, Vanessa has no idea how the Sphinx would go about their destruction, though. Uh, they tell her about the plague, and it's nothing she's ever heard of. She tells them the, they won't be hearing from the Sphinx, since he's expecting them all to die, so they should just abandon Fablehaven. Yeah, that's not going to happen. But can she provide the proof that the Sphinx is a traitor? She doesn't have that, but she's got names of other traitors and a great big super duper secret if only they let her go. Sorensen say no, and they shut her back up in the box, removing that poor bird man. Poor bird man. I felt really bad for him. He couldn't agree to that. 
They just put them in there. I wonder if it has to be a living thing that you put in. Like if you couldn't just put in like a standing lamp into the quiet box and then have it open. So the next time someone opens it, like, put a lamp in here. Well, uh, there must be some sort of like minimum intelligence requirement or something. Otherwise, they would just like have a frog that they would put in there or something. Or like a stack of oranges. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um. There is a European cartoonist that I really uh, like in his name. He just goes by Jason, and all of his characters are animal-faced people. The animal aspect is just part of his style. It it has no bearing on the story. But all of the characters, because of the way he draws them, always look a little bit like they're staring out into the middle of distance, and they're kind of disappointed with what they see. (laughs) Uh, And that's the sort of bird person that I was picturing going into the quiet box. It's just this kind of like, well... Guess this is my life now. I pictured Big Bird. Oh no, don't put Big Bird in the quiet box. (laughs) (laughs) Alright, chapter 7, Lost Mesa. They're driven out to Lost Mesa by a guy named Neil, who's so quiet he makes my brother look like Chatty Cathy. I didn't write this in the notes, but um, Neil says to Kendra that, like, hey, we're almost there, or whatever, and she's like, oh yeah, there's the fence that says, like, keep out. And he's like, you can see the fence? And she's like, oh, no, <laughs> I just revealed <laughs> that I can see things. <laughs> yeah, and was he like, it took me months to figure out how to see that. I still struggle to see that. And she's just like, just kidding. <laughs> I mean, like, haha, wouldn't that be crazy? Uh, could you believe? It's like, the, <laughs> what if we kissed? Wouldn't that be so crazy? Haha, <laughs> not like we would actually ever do but that. if we did. <laughs> <laughs> and you're just sitting there like, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> okay anyway when they arrive everyone comes out to greet them and i really don't absorb the names very well but uh there's a dude named javier who's in a wheelchair because he lost his leg but this is hand waved for now because the grown-ups go in to talk and rosa the caretaker's husband hal takes kendra and gavin on a tour of the preserve Hal kicks things off by ribbing them about being a couple, and you can fuck right off with that heteronormative horseshit, thinks Hal. The kids get to see the preserve's giant cow, Maisie, uh, some fairies, a jackalope, a hybrid of rabbit and antelope that is thankfully not voiced by Dave Coulier. This is a very obscure 90s reference that I will explain to Josh later. And a cemetery of zombies that are kept under the ground. They're fed a lumpy, bloody liquid through tubes once they ring their old-timey safety coffin bell. Kendra and I are like, why the hell would you preserve these? And he gives this bullshit sanctimonious speech about how you can't just preserve pretty things. And I 110% disagree with him and the comparisons he draws to make his point. But we can get into that later. Uh, Shit really hits the fan when he shows off their skeleton collection and Gavin freaks out at the huge disrespect of displaying dragon bones. Hal asks, oh, do you care about dragons? And his tone reminds me of every time I've ever been offended by something racist and someone scoffs at me for caring because I'm white, which it mattered to me. I might be reading too much into this character, but he's hitting all my asshole squares on the bingo card, <laughs> which helps me determine if I dislike a person. He's only been in the book for like six pages and he's already ticked so many boxes. Yes, he has. It's amazing. I bet he refers to women as females. Gavin reveals that his father is renowned dragon tamer Chuck Rose, and Hal trips all over himself apologizing, saying if he'd known, he wouldn't have been quite as cavalier in showing him the bones. Insert that Thor meme modified to say, would you though? Would you? Pro tip, if someone would find a thing offensive, maybe just don't do it at all. 
I once worked with a manager who apparently hated having me there because he had to watch what he said. Dude really liked saying gross shit about women. Off of my soapbox now, the dragon bones had been donated by Patton Burgess, one-time caretaker of Fablehaven. Kendra pretends not to know who he is, so as not to give away personal info as she was warned. Anyway, we finally go back to the house and to some characters I can actually stand. Uh, they have dinner, and to Kendra's white person palate, the food's too spicy, <laughs> but it's good. <laughs> then Warren pulls Kendra aside to brief her on their mission. They're going after the artifact tomorrow. It's through a vault on top of Painted Mesa. And hey, it's guarded by a dragon, which killed a dude named Zack, and that's how Javier lost his leg. Um, it's why, also why Gavin's with them. Uh, he's a dragon tamer which is someone who's immune to dragon stunning, and they can talk with the dragon. It'll be fine. He was taught by his dad, Chuck, who was the best of all the dragon tamers. And he totally met a grisly man fate by getting eaten by a dragon. Who boy. Uh, I'm glad that this book can be added to your list of books that contain characters with your name. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's fun. The caretaker's daughter is named Mara. Uh, did you want the jackalope? Yes, I, I know what a jackalope is, and I know who Dave Coulier is. I don't know how they relate. Okay, so back in the 90s, there was a television show called America's Funniest People. It would come on right after America's Funniest Home Videos, and America's Funniest People was more like, I think they recorded a lot in like shopping malls, places, and then people would wait in line to like do their impressions for the camera and stuff, and uh, I think people did submit videos occasionally, but there was like this running gag that they'd do some little like short that they'd filmed with Dave Coulier. And there's like the jackalope that he voiced and it'd go fast as fast can be. You'll never catch me. Ha ha. And there was like this whole thing of like trying to catch the jackalope and stupid. But I was like six at the time. So I thought it was super funny. And the voice he used for the jackalope, if you ever watched Full House, is the same voice he used as for, to play like for the puppet. Yeah, for the puppet on his like uh, Ranger Joe show. OK, <laughs> I figured you. I was like, that's a little too 90s. He's not going to get that. When they're out there feeding the uh, zombies, Hal says, good thing I normally bring more than I need. 20 bells is what I consider a busy day, and my girlfriend has been playing Animal Crossing almost nonstop, and bells is <laughs> the, the currency in that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, that, that whole like sanctimonious speech he gave, where he's all like, oh, I mean, you'd still preserve a bat, even if it was ugly, and so you should preserve zombies. And I'm like, okay, A, no. You don't preserve the anything based on what it looks. You preserve it because it plays some part in the ecosystem, which is what a bat would do, and it's important. Otherwise, we'd be overrun with bugs. But I don't get why you would keep a zombie because it wasn't originally a zombie. It was originally a person that had a bad disease thing happen to it. So I was like, why are you keeping them? And this whole setup does not seem like it's going to be very – it doesn't seem like a very good long-term solution to keeping them. Because he said, like, oh, yeah, if you don't come out here for the bells, they'll all just overrun the place. And I was like, I think I know how this place is going to fall. Well, yeah, because it's, like, it's not like they're even giving them, like – they're preserving them in the sense that they're not letting them die, but they're not giving them any sort of life. It's just like, I'm just going to leave you in a coffin and shove mash down your throat. That's just preserving it to say that you're preserving it. You're not, there's nothing useful about that for anybody. I just, I don't understand why you'd preserve It's like the people that keep like diseases in bottles and you're like, please don't do that. You're just asking for that to fall. Cause like they, ha I think in a uh, smallpox mostly just exists in labs now and we don't even get immunized for it anymore. Cause it's been so largely eradicated. 
So it just, it's such a dangerous thing. It makes me, it, I was just like, this is bad with the zombies. I don't think they should be preserving these. And then I was proved right later. Yeah, anytime there's a situation where it's like, it's fine as long as X doesn't happen, you know X, X is happen. going to happen. Of course X is going to happen. X is going to give it to you. X is going to give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, chapter eight, Shadow Man. After a day of debating what um, what could have caused the plague and ruling out all four of the demons at Fablehaven, Seth gets ready for bed. While glancing out the window, he sees the shadowy outline, outline of a man gesturing for him to open the window. Seth remembers what hell he rained down on his family the last time he opened a window at night, see book one, and closes the curtains and immediately goes to his grandparents. Ah, Seth, look at you with your character development. Of course, the Shadow Man's not there anymore when Seth shows everyone. They reiterate to him that he needs to keep the window shut, and Tanu will search the roof in the morning. The next day is dedicated to research, and Seth's allowed to play in the yard with Mandango and Hugo, so long as someone's on the porch to babysit him. It's when Tanu's on Seth duty around dusk, dusk, around dusk, that the Shadow Man returns. Seth points him out, but Tanu can't see him. But he does take Seth seriously, though, and they go inside, hollering for the others. No one can see the Shadow Man, and Grandma thinks Seth's screwing with them, but he's adamant that he sees something. The Shadow Man waves his hand, and Seth sees some missing fingers. And dude, it's Coulter! Maybe! Grandpa interrogates Coulter while Seth translates his body language, which is mostly thumbs up or downs. Coulter wants Seth to come with him to the woods. It can't be anyone else. He's not too keen on Seth going accompanied, either. Grandpa doesn't know if he can trust this version of Coulter and asks him to come back another night so they can deliberate over what to do. When Coulter agrees and leaves, Grandpa suggests that they go back to Vanessa. Dale volunteers to be placed in the quiet box to save time. Once they have Vanessa out, they remove her handcuffs and tell her about Coulter. Does she have any theories? Oh, she might, if you let her out. Grandpa's had enough and tells her to cut the shit or she's going to go to the Hall of Dread. It's a big red door at the end of the dungeon where the prisoners get no food. That scares Vanessa into talking. She thinks the previous occupant of the quiet box is responsible for the plague. And that theory takes on more weight when everyone realizes that they hadn't had a very good look at this prisoner when the Sphinx took them away. She tries to wheedle them into letting her out so she could study the plague firsthand, but they shut her back in and remove Dale, who, boy, is he happy to be back. Now what to do? They wonder if Nero the Troll saw the prisoner with his magic peeping stone. He won't help them for free, so what would he want in exchange? And that's if this plague hasn't reached him and turned him darker. Grandpa suggests they sleep on it and decide in the morning. This is going to take a lot of sleeps. So Seth sees the Shadow Coulter, and nobody else can. And I really like, uh, Seth is like, do you think I'm crazy? And Tanu's like, I think we better get inside just because I can't see him doesn't mean you don't. You know, we already we already know that there's, like, magical craziness that prevents certain people from seeing things and stuff like that. But just in general, it's really nice to have a book where the adults will validate the concerns and the thoughts of the children. Uh-huh. Plus, there's this whole, like, um, stranger things have happened. Why not? Let's keep her... Yeah. Open. I've been uh, watching that show, What We Do in the Shadows. I've yeah. seen the movie, and I'm, I'm, I'm watching the show now. And um, there's an episode where they realize they have a ghost in their house. And the girl vampire is like, okay, we have ghosts. And the other two guy vampires are like, no, no, there's no ghosts. There's no such thing as ghosts. And they're like human familiars like, okay, but you're vampires. Why wouldn't there be ghosts? (laughs) Why are you drawing the line at this? (laughs) That happens. I don't remember what I was reading. 
it happens weirdly often in superhero comics where they'll try to draw the line at like, well, it can't be magic or something. They're like, we need to bring in Constantine. And it's like, why? There's no such thing as magic. And it's like, you can fly. You're talking to an alien. <laughs> <laughs> There's also that line in Firefly where they were trying to, uh, they were talking about River and how she might be able to read minds. And then Wash is like, ah, reading minds. It's not real. That's like science fiction. But his wife goes like, you live on a spaceship, dear. <laughs> I really enjoyed the callback to the prisoner from the quiet box and being like, like again, coming to the whole, like he, he set it, it he sets things up and it, it doesn't always go the way you expect, but he puts things in place and he's like, don't worry. We're going to talk about that again. Uh-huh. Um, so it's always rewarding as a reader um, or at anything that is a long-term series. It's really nice when you feel like you paying attention and sticking with it is rewarded with those sorts of payoffs. It's one of the things that it's one of the things I've always actually hated about the Pokemon games because each Pokemon game, it's like you finish it, you collect all of the Pokemon, and then the next game, they're like, "All right, now you have to go and finish it and collect all the Pokemon." And there's no, like, you can play the the seventh game in the series, never having played any of the first six, and you're gonna, like, there's, you don't feel rewarded for being a long-term investor, you just feel like you are paying them more and more money to give you the same experience over and over again. <laughs> it's I, It got to the point where I was like, okay, you don't actually care that I'm actually playing all of these, because you're not giving me anything different or acknowledging any of that work that I did, you just want me to repeat the motions, but in a slightly larger game. And I always thought that that was disappointing. So it's nice when people acknowledge that you're sticking around and you, if you're the more attention you're paying, the more I am going to reward you for paying attention and giving me that time. Yeah. Chapter nine pathways. Kendra's woken during the night by a thunderstorm. She opens the window to let in the smell uh, dirt releases when it rains, called petrichor, and it's seriously the best smell in the world. And there's a fairy hanging out, enjoying the weather. They get to talking, and Kendra says that she's worried about her friends that are up on the mesa. The fairy's like, stow your worries, girlfriend. Your buddies weren't able to find a way up. Uh, in the morning, Kendra finds out the fairy was right. The paths up the mesa always change, but Neil's way has always been pretty consistent. They think the Mesa's rebelling against them because of their last attempt for the artifact. Neil suggests they try again and uh, bring Kendra along since, since she'd been able to see the disguised fence on the right in. Kendra agrees. A group consisting of Kendra, Warren, Neil, and Mara, my name twin and Rosa's daughter, head out to the Mesa <laughs> to search out a path with no luck. They wait around to see if the Twilight Way will appear at twilight, and nope. It starts raining, and they've all, they're all frustrated, so they decide to leave, and Kendra glances back at the mesa and sees what she takes to be a waterfall, but on closer inspection is water pouring down a flight of stairs. She points it out, and no one else can see it, but Mara's heard of the phenomenon called the flooded stairs. Kendra leads them back, but no one can see uh, the stairs themselves until she leads Neil up a few stairs until she slips. Uh, they decide that they need to do this, you know, go up there tonight, though Warren fights them on Kendra going. Kendra says she'll be fine, even though she's scared shitless of heights. Neil says she doesn't have to go in the dragon vault that she can wait outside like him. He lukewarmly agrees to keep Kendra safe when Warren prompts him. So they leave to go get everyone else and get some climbing equipment. We're doing this. 
this is where I had my note about Brandon Mull being a very thorough writer, is not just his ability to put in topics that he's going to revisit, but how whenever he has a conversation about something, you see the characters ask all the questions that you're asking. Yeah. Being like, what about this? What about that? And then either providing answers or being like, that's a good thing to think about. He doesn't write drama or any sort of situation where he's just like hoping that you don't notice something in order to then use it. He's like, I'm going to put it all out there, but then whatever happens is still going to happen, yeah. even if they are prepared for certain things. And so it's really, it's again, it's really cool for him to be like, well, what would the reader probably be thinking at this point? Let's address that. Yeah. So um, it's a very good way of writing. He is very much against taking the easy way out. Yes. I've tried to do that with my stuff, too. Where it's like, okay, what's the most logical place this can go? Why don't I go just to the left of that? <laughs> So it's it's still right. like a logical way to go, but not quite where everyone would assume the story's going. And, and it's still like supported by the rest of the story. And I think more people need to be take that into account when they're writing their stories, because not everything has to be like, oh, look at this big twist that came. It changes everything. Yeah. Twists are it's very it's very important for twists. You have to, to earn your twist. Yeah. One of the things that I've been trying to do is um, I've been working on a little uh, webcomic and every time I come to like where the punchline would be, I'll think of the punchline and then I'll sit with it and be like, well, that was the first punchline I thought. <laughs> and it's okay. But is it the best? And workshopping that and being like, let's get through the first like two or three ideas that come to you easily and try to find the one that is a little more challenging to get to, but the payoff is bigger. That's a really important skill, especially for somebody, like, a lot of things have always come sort of easy to me. Like, it's easy for me to be alright at something, but it's really hard for me to be great at something. And when you have that situation where you're fortunate enough to be able to kind of, like, skate by, taking that extra effort to make something phenomenal is really, really hard. Because you're like, I'm already mostly there, what does it even matter? So then when you have something that you care about and you want to be the best it can be, trying to push yourself over that point to get to where it's like, that's not just all right, that's really good, takes far more work than just getting to all right in the first place. Mm -hmm. So it's really cool to see a writer who doesn't stick with all right and and pushes through. Yeah, so. yeah. I, I think he, he must have like really smart people who read his stuff as well and can point things out. Because in acknowledgments, he always says like, oh, I had like invaluable help from these people. I think he's just choosing very good beta readers for this who aren't just going to be yes men who like, like, oh, yeah, that was good. Let's get the next part. There's yeah, people who like probably point stuff out. And he's like, hmm, let me retinker that. Let's let's see what we can do here. All right. Chapter 10, Shadow Wounds. Back at Fablehaven, the grandparents and Dale have gone to see Nero and Seth and Tanu are playing checkers. Tanu's letting Seth win, to his annoyance, when they hear someone calling for help at the edge of the yard. It's Doran, and he's distressed because the Dark Nipsies attacked Newell, and he's changing. Tanu follows Doran back to the Satter's tennis court, allowing Seth to come along so long as Mandango carries Seth to safety on his command. Then when Seth shows signs of fatigue while they're running there, Tanu orders Mandango to carry him, which makes Seth all resentful. Who boy, is he going to feel the need to prove himself later? Uh, when they arrive at their destination, Newell's completely transformed into a dark satyr, completely covered in hair and all big and scary, kind of like the beast, but without the cape and sad eyes. 
So there's a fight, and Newell splinters one of Mandango's wooden arms and takes a big bite out of Tanu's arm. Tanu has Seth drink a potion that turns him gaseous and has Mandango carry Tanu himself back to the house, while Newell chases Doran into the forest. Seth slowly drifts home while worrying, but he makes it back before the potion wears off. Tanu lets him into the house, and his arm where he was bitten is all shadowy, though he sees it as invisible. Seth manages to communicate this distinction, and Tanu realizes what happened to Coulter is happening to him, too. He goes outside in case he goes all evil, like Newell, and Seth's gas potion wears off. The others come home and get all filled in about this new shit show. Their own mission had been a bust. They'd found Nero trapped under a huge log. Some dark dwarves attacked him and stole his shit, including his peeping stone. Tanu says he'll give them two thumbs up if they can trust him once he's completely turned, but that's not much of a guarantee. Grandpa pledges to do all he can to restore Tanu, even though there's uh, not much for him to do, and he still doesn't like the idea of letting Seth follow Coulter. Seth begs him to reconsider, and Grandpa says he might, though he says it only to humor Seth. They're playing checkers, and uh, <laughs> Seth's like, when he, when he figures out what Tanu's doing, he's like, I know pity when I see it. Is this your way of getting back at me for always going first? And Tanu's like, when you're black, you say coal before fire. When you're red, you say fire before smoke. How can I keep up with that? <laughs> <laughs> It was sad seeing Doran have, like, actual emotions. Yeah, because they're, they're just so, like, blasé and, like, yeah, yeah it's like no, no worries ever until this happens. That made me sad, because they're my favorite characters. When Seth is in his, like, gas form, apparently you control it like riding a Segway. Yeah, yeah, you just kind of... Um, <laughs> yeah, you just kind of, like, lean, and then it, it'll get, go based on that. You get the idea. Um this book is really good for the Seth character development. Yeah. Seeing him move from being the obnoxious, impulsive younger brother to the obnoxious, impulsive younger brother who is also now self-aware enough to choose when to use those aspects of himself. Right, yeah. And him starting to pay more attention to what's going on around him, like at the very end when uh, they're talking about like the idea of Seth being the only one that can see the shadow people and being able to help, and then... Uh, He's like, did you just wink at Grandma? Are you just saying things to shut me up? And Grandpa's like, you get more perceptive every day. <laughs> yeah, I like that too. So that was that was really fun because Kendra's obviously been intelligent from the start, but it's nice to see like Seth isn't dumb. It's just that he doesn't he hasn't in the past taken the time to really think through things in the same way. Um, but now he's able to apply some of that thinking while still retaining his Seth-like answers to things. He just can take a step before he gets to that point to assess if that's going to be the best way to handle it or not. Right. All right. Uh, chapter 11, The Old Pueblo. At Lost Mesa, everyone's getting their stuff together, and Kendra sees Gavin with a spear and is like, um... Gavin explains that old weapons like spears and axes can be used against the creatures of the old Pueblo. It's technically not part of the preserve because it's way older, so the agreements uh, to not kill anyone doesn't apply there, which is good to know. Then Gavin insists that Kendra back out of going since he suspects she can't fight. Kendra laughs in his face because, dude, see books one and two of the series. When he looks crushed, Kendra kindly thanks him for his concern, but she's really the only one who can get them where they need to go, so there's no backing out. Um, so off they go, and it's still pissing rain, luckily, so Kendra gets them going up the stairs. They're not sure if the stairs were hold if the rain stops, so uh, faster would be better. 
When they reach the top, oh, they've interrupted Kachina's doing a rain dance, and they're so not happy. <laughs> These spirits of the Pueblo have animal heads, and they don't like intruders. So one grabs Tammy and throws her over the mesa. I don't remember who Tammy is, but I'll go back and tell you what we knew of her. She had a talent for finding and disabling traps and had been the one living and unmaimed survivor of the last mission. She pushed Javier's wheelchair a lot. That's all I got. Sorry, Tammy. A battle ensues and everyone's trying to get to the ruins uh, where the spirits can't get them. Gavin does extraordinarily well during the fight. At one point, Neil puts Kendra on his back to get her to safety and just turns into a horse. <laughs> He loses her during the fighting, but Gavin swoops in, gets her on Neil, and hops on as well. Neil drops them at the ruins and then heads back out to the fight. Kendra apologizes to Gavin for earlier. He was right. She can't fight. Now Tammy's dead. Gavin tells her that Tammy's death isn't her fault, and uh, his rescuing Kendra gave him a handy excuse to get out of the battle, so thanks for that. This conversation is interrupted by a coyote man coming after them, and they fend him off with Gavin's spear and Kendra shining her flashlight in his eyes. Uh, he retreats and drops his rain stick, which controls the severity of the weather outside. Uh, the others join them, and when they hear about Coyote Man entering the ruins, they figure they lost their protection for interrupting a sacred rite. So now it's not safe for Kendra to stay topside while the others go down into the vault. A dragon's no safer, but a person can feasibly survive in a vault. So uh, Dugan finds the lock in the ground, inserts the flat disc key, and the ground starts rotating and lowering them down into the Pueblo. Yeah, we didn't get to know Tammy very much before that happened, but it was still like, I mean, that's that's a harsh way to go. Uh It's just like smacked off the edge of a multi-hundred foot mesa. That's, That's rough. Yeah. The start of the chapter with Gavin and Kendra. She's kind of trying to placate his concerns about her. And she's like, is he just acting like this because she? I'm a girl and he thinks that I'm delicate or whatever. And then Gavin's like, you think I'm a dumb teenage boy spouting off about girls having no business on an adventure? Not so. I'm worried about whether I'll survive. I would hate to see you get hurt. Kendra, I insist you tell Warren you would rather stay behind. And then Kendra just bursts out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like the fact that Gavin has a stutter, which is traditionally a sign of being, like, weak and feeble, but he is also one of the better fighters. Holy crap, he is, yeah. He's got, like, almost superhuman strength, and was fighting, like, what, like, six of them at one point, like, all at once? That's, like, skills you see in, like, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Is he the Slayer? (laughs) Boy, Slayer! And then at the end, Warren's like, neither option is inviting, but at least the vaults are designed to be potentially survivable. Kendra hoped Warren was right. She could not help remembering that only one and a half of the three people who had entered the vault last time had emerged. I mean, that's a 50% success rate. I mean, yeah, sure. That's one way of looking at it. Let's get into some obstacles. Okay. They've been going back and forth up to this point, and I was I was yeah. really glad they didn't do that this, this time. Yeah, I was like, this is too stressful. Please don't turn yeah, right I was now. Like, Can we just finish this? And it's like he knew we needed to have that follow-up. So uh, chapter 12, obstacles. Down in the vault, we find out that Neil's torn a tendon in his leg. He should have stretched before shape-changing into a horse. They continue on with Neil hobbling using Gavin's spear for a crutch along uh, steep rocky pathways that suddenly give way to a long stream way down below. There's rocks they have to leap to get across. 
Tammy had told them that the big three obvious rocks that you look at and jump on to get across, those were booby-trapped and to collapse if anyone stepped on them. So Warren quickly makes it across you going the longer way around. And uh, he has a rope with Kendra and a harness, so if she falls, he can catch her and pull her back up, provided she doesn't smash against the wall. Well, she makes it across safely and wonders aloud how the hell Javier got through this after losing a leg. That's answered easily enough. Tammy carried him after he took a potion to make himself lighter. Okay, cool, but how were they able to get out anyway? Kendra knows from experience that these temples don't let you out unless you have their artifact. No one has a definitive answer to that, so we'll call that red flag number one. The others get across, Gavin carrying Neil on his back. Damn, this kid is strong. And they continue to the next obstacle, which is a cavern full of choke pods, which are a type of plant that if it comes into contact with you, it activates all the others around it and they release a poisonous gas. So Warren goes first, and once he's across, he acts as spotter for the others, warning them which way to move. Tammy had warned them that staying low was your best bet, and it's really damn close for our heroes. Maybe a little too close, because when it's Neil's turn, it doesn't go well. Pour one out for Neil, y'all. Next is the dragon, and Gavin goes on ahead to do his dragon tamer thing. He'll whistle when it's safe to come into the cavern to pass through, but no one should look at the dragon. The whistle comes. They go walking in. Kendra immediately looks at the dragon. <laughs> the dragon's all, you dare look. And Kendra's frozen, but she's able to speak and is like, duh, because you're so hot. How can I not look? Gavin regains the dragon's attention and the others make it out. Gavin follows a little after them with the key the dragon relinquished. Yeah, apparently he'd won the staring contest. But okay, Gavin's confused. This place is hella old, but the dragon that he's been speaking with was really young, like only 100 years old. He'd seen evidence of a larger dragon's claw marks on the rocks, but the dragon had refused to tell him where her parents were. That's red flag number two. They continue on to the chapel portion of this place, where they assume the artifact is. They're wary as they look around, expecting the guardian to leap out any moment. They're at the boss level, so where's the boss? Then Kendra finds a silver altar inscribed in fairy language. Just to make sure, she asks Warren if he can read it, and he can't. So she helpfully translates. Drink the milk. <laughs> oh, <sorry. laughs> Courtesy of the world's greatest adventurer, this artifact has a new home at Fablehaven. The princess is in another castle, in other words. They may as well have carved a middle finger in there as well. It's a carving of the artifact, but then it's also a carving of Calvin peeing on it. <laughs> Interestingly enough, those are completely unlicensed things. Bill Watterson yep. did not agree to that, and they made them anyway. He actually did not agree to pretty much any merchandise whatsoever no. of Calvin and Hobbes besides no, the No cartoons, no... No official Hobbes stuffed animals. He was very intent on, the art that I created exists in the comics realm for a reason. That is where it should live entirely. I know the second he dies, you're going to see all that stuff. Yeah, because yeah. whoever... And I'm not going to buy it. <laughs> I might. I want to stuff Tobbs. <laughs> but I always thought those Calvin peeing stickers were stupid, so... I thought they were dumb first seeing them, and then I learned what they were from, because I didn't read Calvin and Hobbes when I was really young. I got into it when I was more like 10 or 12, and then when I started reading that, I was like, now they're extra dumb, because this doesn't feel true to Calvin. Like, Calvin's, Calvin's a mischief maker, but he's not, like, aggressively offensive like that? Right. Just like he never him. peed on Susie Durkins. <laughs> <laughs> or Mo. Or who? Uh, oh, Mo. Wasn't that the I thought you said, who Yeah, always... yeah, I thought you said Mao. So I'm like, Chairman Mao? Oh. 
Where would they even meet? You actually just meet a snowman of Chairman Mao. <laughs> and his peas on it. I call it Mao descending a staircase. <laughs> okay, were you stressed out by the yes, choke pod yes. section? Okay, cool. Cause I, I got really claustrophobic during that. I had a hard time breathing. So the dragon's name is... Charlie's Theron. C- yes, yep. <laughs> cool. We'll even finish my part because that is what I am. Yeah, um, but it's also... Yeah, we called her Charlie's. Chapter 13, Secret Admirer. Seth's sitting up debating if he should go against his grandfather's wishes and follow Tanu and Coulter without him. I like that he's at least thinking it through, and he ultimately decides to go, which I also agree with. He grabs his emergency kit, the cereal box of supplies, and goes downstairs uh, to get one of Tanu's potions. As soon as he steps foot outside, Hugo and Mandango swoop in on him, but uh, he takes the gas potion and they can't catch him. Hugo starts kicking the house (laughs) and wakes everyone up. Um, Seth tries to take off, but Grandpa yells at him to wait. He'll come along, too. Seth gestures to Tanu and Coulter to just go, and they refuse, which I think proves to me that they aren't evil. When Grandpa rejoins them with a cart for Hugo to pull them in, they get going. When they arrive at the lair of, what did you call him? Oh, Granola. Okay, I like that better. So when they arrive at the lair of Granola, uh, the demon, he's like, abort mission, we're going home. The treaty doesn't hold here, and Hugo and Mandango can't get inside to help them. Seth runs in anyway, and even though he hates it, Grandpa follows him. Inside, Grandpa's frozen with fear. That's kind of Granola's deal. He induces strong fear in others. Seth's immune to it since he pulled the nail out of the Revenant in book two. Granola saw the whole thing go down and wanted to meet Seth, the kid who could pull off a thing like that. Sure, he had that bravery potion, but it wore off halfway through the struggle, and still Seth won. Not much surprises, Granola, but that did. The dying old demon decides he wants to give Seth some insight into this plague thing. He's pretty sure it originated from the nail that was taken from the Revenant, because they pulled the nail out, and I think it fell on the leaves and like in that area, uh, and Tanu went looking for it later, but it was too late. The captive the Sphinx released was a dragon called Navarog, I have a name for him. Let's hear it. He's uh, Dave Navarog. Okay. Dave Navarog (laughs) grabbed the nail and took it to uh, another demon on the preserve, Kurosawa. It's Kurosawa, but I want to say Kurosawa (laughs) every time. So Granola can't see into Kurosawa's domain, so he doesn't know what happened from there. Dave Navarog's long gone, though. Granola tells him about a few places that repel darkness on the preserve, like the Fairy Queen Shrine and the centaurs have a ring of stones in the far corner of Fablehaven. Those places will fall last. Uh, he also says that Coulter and Tanu are on the level, that humans have too much self-possession to give in to darkness. Anyway, longtime fan, thanks for coming to see me. Seth grabs Grandpa and gets him out. Grandpa was able to hear bits and pieces of what Granola said, but his screaming fear made it pretty difficult. He warns that they can't completely trust everything Granola said, and Seth agrees. At least they have some leads to follow up on, rather than sitting around fretting. Uh, hey, Granola here, long-time listener, first-time caller. I just wanted to say I really liked what you did with The Revenant. Uh, can, uh, so I'd like to dedicate a song to Seth. Could you play Hero by Enrique Iglesias? <laughs> I be your hero, baby. <laughs> so, it seems like we're setting up each of the kids as kind of having their own domain where they're strongest. So Kendra has a stronger tie with fairies. Seth has a tie, or not a tie so much as an immunity to darkness. And Gavin has his ability to withstand dragon powers and stuff. Mm-hmm. 
So it definitely seems like they're each kind of like choosing their class, which will be interesting if they have to fight like a demon fairy dragon. Um, <laughs> We're all set. <laughs> <laughs> When they bring up the idea of the prisoner from the quiet box possibly being the source of the plague, I was like, oh, that's interesting. That's kind of like one of the last things that we had in the previous book. And so that's an interesting way to tie it back. But then the twist of it actually being the Revenant nail that we assumed was that was the end of its story. I was like, yeah, they did the Revenant. That was just that was the end of it. But that coming back around and that being the thing was like, that's really cool because it comes back, but it's already been... A st- it, I, it's just fun. It's really <laughs> fun when, when he does stuff like that, so I approve. Plus, it makes sense, because, I mean, that thing should be imbued with a lot of, like, serious power, since it made that thing so treacherous, the Revenant. So right. it makes sense that it shouldn't be like, oh, no, it's not a problem, it's just a nail. I enjoyed that interaction between Seth and the demon. I liked the, the dynamic there of him being, like, the demon just kind of being like, oh, I guess my time is over. I guess I'll just sit here forever now. Yeah, he uh, spoke with, like, a lot of ellipsises because he's, like, he's, like, old and sick and, like, uh, dying. And so his voice was reminding me of the rock biters in a never-ending story. They look like such big, strong hands. And I was trying to read it that way, but I was like, let's, let's get going faster. <laughs> This, this is taking way too long. <laughs> this joke is not worth the investment I am putting in for myself. Right, exactly. Chapter 14, Homecoming. Back at last Mesa, our friends emerge after a long-ass night, but at least they have treasure. Dugan suggests that they pretend they succeeded, and that a uh, random chalice they have is the artifact. There may still be a traitor on the preserve. Good plan. Uh, they find Tammy's body and load her into the truck, driving back to the main house. Once there, Kendra falls into bed crying and falls asleep. Uh, when she wakes up, she talks with Warren, and they decide to talk to Dugan and let him in on a little bit about their suspicions about the Sphinx. So they go talk to Dugan, who takes their concerns seriously and asks if they have any other questions. Warren tells him he only knows of four preserves. Where's the fifth? Turns out no one knows. That's not ideal. The next day, Kendra wakes up to an empty house uh, until Gavin strolls in and tells her the big news. Javier took off with the decoy artifact and slashed the tires of all the cars. Well, shit. Back at Fablehaven, Seth's poring over Patton Burgess's journals for mentions of the demon Kurosawa. He finds one. Patton went to see the demon once, thinking he was responsible for what happened to his uncle, but uh, he backed down, though he hates that his aunt will get no treatment for her condition. We puzzle over this for a bit until Dale comes to tell Seth that Kendra and Warren are home. Uh, The characters all reunite downstairs, filling each other in on what's been going down. Now they've got two leads to follow up on, the possible plague source and now a second artifact in Fablehaven. Also, the grandparents have promised to send the kids home in less than a week just to make the parents stop bellyaching. It would still be unsafe for Kendra and Seth outside the preserve, so they need to figure some shiz out stat. This is going to sound weird. I was really glad that when Kendra went to bed, she just started sobbing. Yeah. Because even though we have had, like, kind of dark, crazy situations, watching somebody die is still, like, a novel event for her. And she didn't really properly deal with that during the adventure. So it was nice that it 
you got to see her keep it together because she knows that there's like a lot of stuff happening right now. But I was really glad that she had a chance to just be like, what is going on? This is a lot. Cause she's too young to just be like, ah, oh, you just buck up and keep right. going. She needs to be able to work through that. And it wasn't just one death. It was two. That's yeah. even more intense. And especially since they saw Neil's body when they were crawling back through and it was starting to, like, disintegrate or whatever. So that would have been pretty upsetting to see as well. Plus, yeah. I mean, she's exhausted that this hat took all night to do. And then she'd been all up, up all the previous day. And then the day before that, they made a big flight from Connecticut to Atlanta to Arizona. So all of it has to catch up with her finally. So I'm glad she got that release. Chapter 15, Brownie Sunday. Sunday, brownie Sunday. Kendra's had another carnival-themed nightmare. She and everyone she cares about fell to their deaths from a Ferris wheel. Fun! Things are so dire that Seth's openly reading old caretaker journals, despite the teasing he received for his hypocrisy and sneering at bookworms. As a lifelong bookworm, a hearty fuck you to you, Seth, and if you love reading as much as I do, Joshua, you won't ding me for that. Kendra suggests that they go talk to Lena, often her naiad pond, uh, she was Patton's wife for years, so she may know the fate of his aunt and uncle and what the deal is with the second artifact. Grandpa refuses to take Kendra with him, so of course he gets nothing from Lena. He reports that lots of light creatures are gathered at the pond, including Doran, so yay, he's okay. Things are looking grim, and they end up so much worse. Kendra and Seth are woken in the night by their grandfathers shouting through the walls. The brownies are corrupted and are going all Kevin McAllister, building booby traps around the house as we speak. The adults are sheltered in the secret attic and advise the kids to stay in their rooms. In the morning, Warren comes to the kids and tells them to open their door, then leap out of the way. They do when arrows come flying into the room. They creep out carefully and see the attic stairway's been heavily booby trapped. Uh, the illustration is pretty fantastic with all these wires and crossbows and hatchets. <laughs> it seems a little overkill. But, um, Seth suggests pushing their rocking horse down the stairs to set off most of the traps, and it's an awesome idea, and it works great. Uh, the stairs are also, the stairs, like, going down to the first floor, uh, those are a shit show as well. But um, Warren gets down them and guides everyone down one by one. Uh, Dale checks the garage, and he finds the cars are all sabotaged, and dark creatures are blocking the gate. Oh, and the brownies have the register, so anything can get into the house now. Um, parts of Mandango are parts of the traps, too, which really genuinely upset me. At least Hugo's in a safe room out in the barn, so he's okay. Um, so the house is compromised, obviously. Grandpa says to grab what shit you need, and they're out of there. Yeah, poor Mendigo. It, it reminded me of um, in The Wizard of Oz when the scarecrow gets pulled apart by the flying monkeys. And he goes, they took part of me and threw me over there. They threw the other part and threw it over there. So I was just picturing Mandango gesturing and saying that. When Kendra's questioning Seth's bad cover story about how he read about Kurosawa. <laughs> and she was like, you know, I was wondering, Seth, it seems like a big coincidence that one of those journals fell open to a page about Kurosawa. In fact, I'm having a hard time picturing a game that makes books fall open in the first place. How does that happen? If I didn't know how useless reading was, I might suspect you were studying those journals on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> and he's, I know, he's like, no, you. So human brains, are uh, they adapt very quickly. And uh, one example of this is that whenever I read about them going outside, I'm like, 
did you make sure to wash your hands and put on a mask? No. And like, you know, two months ago, I wouldn't be thinking about that. But now it's like someone referred to like I was, you know, like I, I was watching an old footage of something and I saw somebody shaking hands with someone else. And it was like poured for me. It's like, oh, yeah, you touch that person's hand without wearing gloves. Mm, yeah. Yeah. You stand closer <laughs> than six feet. Oh, I like it. <laughs> I see the same thing and I see stuff that was like previously recorded and they're all like, oh, new. And it's like a stadium full of people all going ah about something. And I'm like, how are there that many people all together? They're all going <laughs> to die. Seth's rocking chair idea was actually really it was hard. it was I I refer to him as uh he's becoming an intelligent battering ram is how <laughs> I describe him or he's in the chaotic good category now right <laughs> <laughs> he's a loose cannon cop who doesn't play by the rules oh my god Kendra and Seth are so buddy cops. <laughs> And then the grandpa's totally the chief, all like, you wrecked three cars! You're out of control, Sorensen. <laughs> yeah, but I took in the guy, chief. You got 24 hours to fix this, or I'm taking you back! <laughs> Alright, chapter 16. Refuge. The fam hops onto a cart, pulled by Hugo, and they head off to the Fairy Queen's turf slash naiad pool. They're loaded up with camping gear and flash powder to fight off dark fairies. And sure enough, a cloud of them attack, and they start throwing the powder. As they approach the refuge, the entrance is guarded by three dark satyrs. Grandpa orders Hugo to just run them over, and one of them ends up in the cart until Dale, of all people, tackles him out. Hugo pushes the cart to safety and fights by Dale's side before picking him up and carrying him to the others. The place is crawling with creatures, many of which we've never met before. Doran greets them and introduces them to another satyr named Verl, who obnoxiously flirts with Kendra. He sucks, so Grandpa makes them leave by asking for help setting up tents. Nothing makes a sadder leave faster than the mere suggestion of work. Kendra and Grandpa go to talk to Lena, and Seth wants to talk to the Dryads, but they're all regal and pretty, and he's kind of intimidated. Furl makes it worse by being a horned-up loser, so Seth insists that one of the ladies is totally into Verl, and he should make a move. This intimidates Furl into leaving, but Seth gives up on the Dryads, and he goes to talk to the Centaurs instead. Centaurs are pretty laconic and don't really want to talk to Seth. Uh, they're surprised he knows about their refuge, Grunhold, but other than that, they brush Seth off and he walks away thinking they're D-bags. Uh, meanwhile, Kendra entices Lena up to the surface with the promise of seeing Patton's picture. She answers their questions and it kind of helps. She doesn't know what happened to Patton's uncle, but she does know the artifact is hidden in the abandoned manor that Seth found in book two. And in the northernmost room on the third floor, there's a safe that appears every Monday at noon for one minute. She gives the combo as 332231, and Grandpa looks at her weird, so I'd like to know what that's about. Kendra asks if she can get the Fairy Queen's dish back. If she can return it to the altar, she can ask the Queen for help with the plague. Lena says no gives these backsies, and that's kind of it. I like Dale. I like the fact that he's the guy who doesn't have any, like, special talent besides just being a hard worker who has just been around this for a while. Yeah. He's not the potions guy. He's not the weapons guy. He's just the helpful guy. That's why I was surprised when he's the one who tackled the satyr. I was yeah. like, where was Warren? Was Warren in the bathroom when this happened? This was right. such a Warren move, and he didn't do it. To the same. Yeah. You know what that is, right? 33, 22, 31. No. No, yeah. what's... that is totally her measurements. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. I was like, "Is that a date?" 
What? <laughs> she didn't pick that. It would have been Patton. <laughs> I know. I know, but that's why she just, like, looks away. She's like, I have no idea. That's a totally random string of numbers that would have no correlation to our relationship. <laughs> that's why that. Grandpa kind of looks at her like, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, just, I felt bad for Kendra when she was talking to Lena at the end, and she's like, are you happy? And, like, Lena doesn't really, when she's a naiad, she doesn't really, she doesn't have extreme no. emotions. It's just, she can, she can just, like, be on cruise control because she doesn't have to invest herself in anything. Yeah. That was kind of just a bummer little conversation. Okay, chapter 17. Preparation H. No, it's preparations. Um. Preparation S. <laughs> the tents are all set up, so Grandma and Grandpa meet with the delegates of each magical group, except the brownies and the centaurs. Seth tries to eavesdrop, but Warren finds him and tells him the tents are soundproof. But no biggie, the grandparents call everyone into the tent to strategize. First of all, everyone they spoke to was willing to do what they can to help against the plague. Then we get kind of sidetracked since Kendra asks how this refuge is holding uh, when the evil brownies have the register. The register mostly just controls who can come near the house. Really old places like this area near the Fairy Queen Shrine predate the treaty and the preserve itself. Then they all get into a discussion about good and evil that I don't really want to get into, but the important bit all in part is that humans don't turn dark because they're creatures of conscience who are actively choosing between good and bad actions every day. Typically, heroic people can do something terrible and villains can do something good. Basically, no one's black or white morally. We're all gray. Anyway, tomorrow's Monday, so they need to make a run for the artifact. Seth's the only one who's been to the manor, so they're bringing him. They realize the last time he was there, he hadn't had milk. So they decide to forego it as well, since there may be something magically more terrible than the whirlwind Seth saw, which could put them off and then they'd miss their really narrow window for this thing. Speaking of the artifact, they're not sure which one it is, but based on uh, what they already know of previous artifacts, it either controls space or time, enhances vision, or it makes you immortal. Back to planning, they're going to have uh, some of the creatures uh, make a diversion, and then everyone's going to be under a blanket in the back of the cart Hugo's going to pull. Kendra's to stay behind, which I find dumb, because they might want someone there who can actually see what's going on, but they have Warren's grody walrus butter to eat if they need to unblind themselves. It would be nice if they could get the centaurs in on the diversion part, but they're too arrogant to actually think of helping someone not in their immediate group, kind of like Republicans. So they send the kids to plead for the centaur's help, but Kendra doesn't like Seth coming along because of his temper. Sure enough, when the kids ask, the centaurs are pretty rude, and Seth pops off, proving Kendra's earlier point, and also Seth should never work in customer service. Um, he insults one of them so grievously that the centaur challenges Seth to a duel. Seth says what I'm thinking and is like, oh, you'd seriously duel a kid, you huge loser. And it looks bad until Seth agrees to this idiot's duel so long as the centaurs lead the diversion and Seth and Fam survive their mission tomorrow. The centaur agrees. As they walk away, Kendra berates Seth for not following their plan, but Seth's like, hey, I get results in coffees for closers. <laughs> <laughs> when Kendra says their grandparents are going to flip their shit, Seth begs her not to tell because it'll stress them out and distract them from the mission tomorrow. They might not even bring Seth and they really need him. This is actually pretty good reasoning, so Kendra promises to wait on her snitching. 
I learned uh, that daylight savings time went into effect sometime around World War II. See, that was so smart. I always wonder about those things where, like, it always happens at the strike of this. And I go, well, is that take into account daylight savings time? Are we talking, like, Pacific Standard Time? Are we talking Greenwich Mean Time? What are we talking about here? So I'm glad that was addressed, because Brandon Mole wrote this. Maybe that's what, Maybe what he does is he just, like, he submits just the base scene of, like, we're going to have a safe that opens at noon. And then he just hands it to people. And he's like, do you have any questions about this? And then he answers all of the questions that they submit in the conversation when he expands it out. Right. And it always kind of feels like Kendra plays that role. Like, how is this place holding? Or in the previous chapters when she's like, how the hell did they get through this on the way back when that dude's missing a leg? But she's always been written as the detailed, detail-oriented one. It's uh, handy to have a character like that. It is. But, like, we see that even when she's not at Fablehaven with the the friend who wanted to, to go out with the guy. And she was like, all right, but here's the thing. Just don't go on a random walk with a stranger by yourself, but let me provide you reasons that you'll actually pay attention to. Like, she's always been that sort of person without having a dead mom. <laughs> I don't know. The parents seem pretty useless, so. At least it's both of them. Uh. <laughs> what do you mean at least it's both of them <laughs> well you wouldn't like, want one sensible can... parent you gotta have two ding-dongs well okay no what i more mean is that if we're having the situation where it's the dead mom and then the dad who is struggling to pr- fill the roles and then the kid has to be mom jr that sucks but if you just if you're like ah, oh, we're just going to basically write out the parents entirely then it's like well they don't need to worry about fulfilling one of the two roles because they're just like Eh, whatever, we're fine. As soon as I recognized what Seth was doing, where it's like, he still has the goal in mind. He's not letting his emotions get to him. He's like, I just have a different way to go about getting our results here. I was like, cool, this is the sort of thing that I want to see, where it's not just Seth screwing up, it's Seth providing an alternate strategy. And it's messier, (laughs) uh, and it definitely has uh, some drawbacks, but, you know, he gets coffee. Yeah, coffee's for closers. Chapter 18, The Old Manor. Uh, the next day, everyone gets into the cart, and the diversion goes well enough that Hugo's able to tow them away. We lose Verl to the dark side, but do we really care that much? At the manor house, Seth sees the place covered in dark shadow cords. Yikes. Uh, they still don't let him in, and after a quick reconnaissance uh, lap around the manor, they split up. Grandpa and Grandma through the front door, Dale through a side window, and Warren through the back door, giggity. <laughs> Seth Seth waits around for a bit and then looks through a window to see his grandparents frozen at the foot of the stairs. The dust storm from book two is bearing down the stairs at them, and Seth eats his little slab of butter to see what they're really facing, and it's the scary shadow woman for book one. Fuck this, I'm out. But Seth isn't a puss like me. He calls a warning to his grandparents, but they're consumed by the shadow woman. Shit! Seth runs to the side of the house to warn Dale, but by the time he gets there, the woman's got him too. Double shit. So, Seth goes after Warren, and the dude's down, consumed by fear. He's able to move when Seth touches him, so they go stumbling and bumbling up the stairs. Tick-tock, fellas. Of course, Warren falls when they're nearly there, and he tells Seth to run. He throws a handful of flash powder at the shadow lady, but it does nothing. Triple shit. 
Seth goes to the door of the northernmost room, but it's locked. Quadruple shit. He's <laughs> he succeeds in breaking it down, and when he's inside, he doesn't immediately see the safe. He searches frantically, and then it abruptly appears in the corner. Cool, he'd made it with some time to spare. He smoothly unlocks the safe, and there's a weird sphere inside covered in dials and buttons. Okay. Seth grabs it and runs to the window, which opens uh, onto a three-story drop. Two if you're in England. Quintuple shit. Suddenly, Seth isn't alone, and by his side is Patton Burgess himself, ladles and jelly spoons. Just then, the shadow woman comes in, and when Patton calls her by her name, Afira, she's pretty startled. Patton starts looking for a way out, and when Seth warns him the window's useless, this badass motherfucker fucking jumps up on the windowsill and reaches for the eaves to pull himself onto the roof. If you read the rest of this book with the Indiana Jones theme playing in your head, you're correct. Patton pulls Seth up, and there's a bit of conversation with Seth identifying himself as the caretaker's grandson, and Patton identifying the artifact as a chronometer. That's all the explanation we get right now, because Afira's coming out on the roof after them. So Patton uh, leaps into a nearby tree and directs Seth to do the same, pointing out the best branch he'd save for the kid. Seth jumps, makes it, and they climb down. They run to the cart, and Seth explains a little about Kurosawa, the revenant nail on the plague. When Patton asked how the hell the nail got out of the revenant, Seth said he the hell did it with pliers and courage potion. Patton thinks this will be the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Since Seth's had his butter, and Patton can always see the magical creatures, there's no point huddling under a tent in the back of the cart, so they have Hugo grab the tent and carry them back to the refuge, avoiding the path and sneaking through the woods. So technically speaking, the only note that I have in this chapter is uh, where it says she was the same apparition who had appeared outside the attic window on uh-huh. summer the previous year, and I just wrote, No, Mara! I, know, I was like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm not a fan of her, but I think what's creepier is before that when he just sees all of the, like, black strands. Yeah. And you're like, oh, crap, there's a center point to all of this. Yeah, yeah. And Patton is fantastic. Yes. I, I had so much fun da, with da, him. Da, da. <laughs> this is an oddly specific button that this thing has. Press this button to teleport to whatever time the next time it's pressed at for three days, and then return to your timeline. Huh? Huh? <laughs> and you're like, that's the time like, travel rule? <laughs> <laughs> what do the other buttons do if one button could get that specific? Press this button to go back to the last time you had oatmeal for breakfast, and choose a different breakfast. <laughs> but yeah, I just like, I was like, okay, Patton's here now, and then Patton started talking, I was like, Patton's really fun. He's just a good, wholesome, 20th century hero, man. See, that, All right. <laughs> that, that's where I accidentally spoiled myself when I was flipping to see how many more uh, pages were in the chapter. I saw Patton said and went, oh. And, but then I was like, he's been mentioned a lot of times up to this point. So it kind of yeah. made sense that it's just like, okay, we're going to keep mentioning him. So then you have a, in your mind who he is because here he is. Yeah. Um, though I still wasn't like ready for him to physically be there. <laughs> um, but... Yeah, I had a lot of fun with him showing up, so... His mustache and his suspenders. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just picture him, like, just standing there up on, like, the tree branch, just kind of, like, bouncing gently. He's like, are you ready to adventure, young one? <laughs> Welcome to Jumanji. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
All right. Yes, Chapter 19, Duel. When Seth, Patton, and Hugo return, everyone's totally stoked to see Patton again. Though Kendra's fascinated, she ultimately wants to know what happened to the others. When she hears that they're shadows, she's embarrassed to cry in front of Patton Burgess, of all people. But he tells her there's no shame in her tears. The centaurs come over to greet him, and it comes out that one of them is dueling Seth in the morning. Patton's like, ah, oh, hell nah, and takes Seth's place. But it takes some convincing. Broadhoof decides to duel without weapons because Patton's a badass with a sword. Uh, the satyrs excitedly clear away the tents so they can see a centaur-ass weapon. And that's exactly what they see. Patton effortlessly sidesteps Broadhoof's charges and punches them in the flank. I totally laughed at that, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I just, I just, what are you going to do? Ah, you know, I'm just going to punch a horseman. <laughs> um, he ends up jumping on Broadhoof's back and getting him in a headlock, bringing him down. Uh, he ends up breaking one of Broadhoof's fingers and tells him to yield. He doesn't want to kill him. Broadhoof resists until the other centaur's like, Will you fucking yield already? And he does. The satyrs are so stoked to see these snotty bastards have their asses handed to them, they embrace one another while crying. <laughs> uh, when Kendra and Seth uh, approach Patton to thank him, he's like, Yeah, I hated having to do that, so maybe watch your fresh mouth from here on out, Seth. Uh, he orders the satyrs to put the tents back how they found them as payment for their show. Then he talks to Kendra about how she glows like she's fairy struck. Turns out Patton's fairy struck too. Neat. But anyway, Seth told him that Lena went back to being a naiad, so he's eager to go to the pond and see her. So Duel is totally the shipping name for the two satyrs, right? It should be, yeah. Duel. 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 <laughs> <laughs> What do you think is the most prized possession that in Patton's timeline he recently gave the centaurs? It was just like a thing that he just like threw out as like why the centaurs, like why they treat him so well. But I, I don't know. I feel like that might be a thing. You know what? That was so subtle. I missed it. So I don't know. I wrote here that Patton was just the injection the story needed at this point because it was getting really dark and gloomy and everything was kind of yeah. Stuckin'. And what's interesting is most, like, YA fantasy is going to be, like, crazy things are happening and only these young children can save the day. But with Fablehaven, it's like, these young children can help save the day, but the day is also saved by a lot of adults <laughs> doing their best, yeah. because realistically, most problems end up getting solved by right. adults. But it doesn't diminish the kids' like agency and influence on what's going on. They they are still able to be an important part of it without it being unrealistically all about the children always. Yeah. And I just thought that I would want to see Patton played by a young Nathan Fillion. Yeah, I mean, even a current age Nathan Fillion would be fine. He's supposed to be like 36, and Nathan Fillion's like almost 50, so it'd be kind of rough. Yeah, but he looks good. They could just do that uh, CGI to, like, wipe away the lines. Just a little bit. They wouldn't need to do, like, overhaul him completely. Just give him, like, I just can picture him punching a horse in the flank. I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Chapter 20, History. Patton's adorably nervous to see Lena, worried she'll tell him to F off if he tries to talk to her. But dude goes, and at first Lena acts like she's not interested, and then gives him a little wink. Then she ducks underwater, grabs the fairy queen's bowl, and surges up out of the water into Patton's arms. She's all young and hot again, so the kids kind of gape at her, but she exclaims over how much they've grown, and it's all very sweet. 
Uh, they go to the tents to speak privately, and Patton explains that he's here for three days since uh, he pushed a button in the chronometer, and Seth pushed that same button in our time. Uh, we get uh, Lena and Patton caught up on what's happening up to this point, and Patton does some splaining of his own. He didn't trust the Knights of the Dawn with the Lost Mesa artifact since way too many people knew about it, so he decided to take it and hide it at Fablehaven. The dragon guarding the mesa at that time was Ranticus, which some goblins worshipped and would bring food as tributes. Patton disguised himself as a goblin, brought food laced with dragon bane, and poisoned Ranticus. He put in a dragon egg, and when it hatched, they named her Char- Charlize Theron, and that's the dragon we have today. Uh, the goblins took the little Charlize and raised her, so Patton didn't have to. Uh, eventually, he donated Renticus's bones to Lost Mesa, and it turns out he was a dragon slayer all along. Haha. He kept that on the DL during his life because dragons are the most human-like of magical creatures with that gray morality that was talked about at great length earlier. Speaking of dragons, when Patton hears that the released prisoner is Dave Navarog, he's apparently the most corrupt dragon, a prince of demons, and will definitely be appearing in the series at some point. Yikes. Uh, also, yikes, Patton also has the tragic backstory of the Shadow Lady. She was once a Hamadryad who left her tree to be with his manhor uncle Marshall. Uh, when Marshall inevitably couldn't keep his dick in his pants, uh, Afira went to all the dark creatures in the preserve to see about becoming immortal again. She went to a swamp hag and blew some rope for our old buddy Muriel Taggart and, <laughs> and ended up at Kurosawa. Makes mad films. Okay, I don't make films. No, sorry. He uh, <laughs> he told her to go to her old tree, burn it down, and bring one seed of it back to him. And then she planted that seed in his tar pit, and she became an extension of Kurosawa, this weird new immortal thing. Then she went to the manor and killed everyone there, but Patton got away with a page from the register and only returned to put the chronometer there. Obviously, he never told Lena this story, since it would have made her nope back into her pond, hearing about flaky humans dicking over immortal beings. Luckily, their marriage worked out perfectly, but Patton's like, la la, spoilers, I'm only five years into our marriage, don't tell me anything else. What we can surmise here is the Revenant's nail is in Afira's tree, which is causing this plague. Okay, cool story, Patton. What do we do now? And our fearless leader, seducer of naiads, dragon tamer, fairy struck, centaur dueler says, mm-hmm. I feel like Warren was very deliberately kind of trying to style himself after yes. Patton. Yes. But didn't quite have the same innate charisma. But I was definitely noticing some parallels in kind of how they handled things. It's really hard to be Nathan Fillion. You can't just be Nathan Fillion. Right. Chapter 21, Fairy Kind. They kind of look over the chronometer, but they can't figure it out. Though Seth has the good idea to go back in time and stop the plague before it starts. Just kill Hitler as a baby. Right. But better not to monkey with it, though. So instead, they decide to return the bowl to the Fairy Queen shrine. Patton was skeptical of the idea until he hears that it originally came from uh, Shiara in book two. She's a trusted fairy, so off they go. Patton rows Kendra out to the island, and the naiads do their damnedest to tip the boat over. It's really tense and looks bad for our duo until Lena comes out on the dock, dipping her feet in the water and luring some naiads over. Uh, With fewer grabby hands, Patton gets Kendra to shore. 
She places the bowl at the shrine and immediately hears the voice of the fairy queen in her head. Being fairy struck, Kendra can hear her better than she did in book one. She asks about the handmaiden thing that the Atlanta fairies mentioned, and the queen's like, yeah, that's right. Only job duties are to embrace the light and live your best life. Live, laugh, love. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, the fairy queen confirms that the plague's coming from the the nail in Afira's tree. The queen's another dimension, another dimension, another dimension, away from the dark, and she can't come help directly. She advises Kendra to use a light talisman to destroy the dark one. Okay, cool. Where can we find a light talisman? Um, there isn't one on the preserve, but the Fairy Queen can make one. Unfortunately, this will destroy the shrine. Once Kendrick carries the talisman past the hedges, the area will no longer be protected anymore. Oh, and whoever touches the talismans together dies. I hate everything about this, but Kendra agrees. The Fairy Queen does her thing, and there's now a pretty shiny pebble and no voice in Kendra's head anymore. When Kendra goes back to Patton, the Naiads have gotten instructions from the Queen to cut their shit, so they sullenly tow the boat back to the dock. I was definitely stressed out with the boat stuff. Oh, me too. At least she it wasn't Kendra by herself in a paddle boat again. And if you're going to trust anybody to like row it and like fight off attackers, it would be Patton Burgess. Right. Who I keep wanting to call Pat Oswalt every time. He would. I don't think he'd be quite as useful, but I think he'd at least try. He might make, play a good like Dale. <laughs> yep. You you really summed up her job is just the go buy a fifteen dollar wood sign that says "Live, Laugh, Love" and hang it somewhere in your house. <laughs> She's changing her name from Kendra to Carrot. <laughs> <laughs> She's trading her paddle boat for a white. Rowboat. Na 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 na. <laughs> okay. Okay. Chapter 22. Light. When they return to camp, the dryads are pissed that the shrine is gone and they demand that Patton explain. He says that the fairy queen did everything and they have something from her to help with the current situation. After a private conference, Patton will let everyone in on the plan. Not exactly happy, the Dryads let it go for now, and everybody gets into the tent. Kendra shows them the pebble and explains everything. Patton's like, damn girl, that's why you're extra shiny. (laughs) (laughs) Then they argue over who should touch the talismans together. Okay, this is where I struggle. Is it talismans or talismen? I didn't know the plural of talisman. I think it's uh, talismai. I'm not doing that. Okay. Then they, <laughs> ar- then they argue over who should touch the talismans together, and Seth suggests uh, someone throw it so no one will be touching it, which is honestly the best idea. Patton's concerned that this could fail, though, and Lena thinks he'll do the thing himself and die, taking away the years they shared together. They argue about the nature of time travel, and then they realize uh, the sun setting. Seth should go see if any shadow people show up to the refuge. While Patton gathers a meeting of the creatures to fill them in on an edited version of events, Seth and Kendra go to the hedges and wait. Eventually, Coulter shows up and gestures Kendra nearer. They're hesitant to do what he wants, but Kendra does, and boom, Coulter's healed! Being a shadow person sucks, and he lost the others. Afira has the grandparents captured. They're extraordinarily good at getting captured, aren't they? Uh, the kids tell Coulter that Patton Burgess has been helping them and they have Lena back and he doesn't believe him until he sees Patton for himself and goes all fanboy like Agent Coulson meeting Captain America. <laughs> okay, so they're all, I mean, they're setting up for the final conflict, obviously. You know that from the fact that it's a prep chapter and 
the fact that there's only two chapters before the end, but for whatever reason, something about it didn't feel like it was about to be the end of the book for me. And I don't quite know how to articulate it, uh, but something about it was just kind of like, okay, yeah, of course, they're going to go do the thing, and then the thing's going to happen. I think it was because we had started this with a lot of speculation about the Sphinx and the traitors and stuff, and then that sort of got pulled away, and you were just kind of, it, it just left behind this story about the plague at Fablehaven, which was more personal because it was just about their sanctuary, but the first part of the book was kind of like, we need to tell you about how there are bad things happening everywhere, and this is bigger than you are experiencing. But then the climax of the book is something a lot smaller. And I know it ties into the fact that these things are happening everywhere. It just, something about the scale felt weird to me. I don't know, I thought it worked. Uh, but that's about all I have. So. Okay. Chapter 23, Darkness. The next morning, everyone gets loaded up on the cart. They take the cart a lot of times in this book. Are your legs broken? Um, as Kendra holds the pebble, a dome of light surrounds them. Patton selects three fairies to hold in a box, their backup in case everyone else fails to connect the talismans. The rest of the fairies make badass armor for Hugo, which exhausts them. And I thought of you when he like put it on. They're like, how do you feel, Hugo? And he goes, big. <laughs> <laughs> Kendra gave the fairies the order to make the armor, and she feels really uneasy about having that kind of power over others. That's something we should probably put a pin into, you know, for future books. They head off to Kurosawa's tar pit, and dark creatures flee from them as they go. It's pretty smooth sailing until Seth points out a dark shadow wall up ahead, which is the beginning of Kurosawa's dominion. Uh, when they pass through, Kendra's light dims a little, but it doesn't go out. Pretty sure there's a Smith song about that. <laughs> uh, in this new gray area they've made, the dark and light creatures battle. Kendra's able to turn a few dark creatures back to light, but some of them, like uh, hobgoblins, minotaurs, and giants, are already dark. Ephira comes out, and she starts getting at everyone with her cloth tentacles, and it's really awful. She manages to kill Broadhoof. Well, actually, Broadhoof kind of gets caught between the dark and the light because Kendra's trying to keep him from the dark, and the struggle of it kills him. Meanwhile, everyone's trying to get the pebble to the damn tree. Patton gets into position, and someone throws it to him, and he tosses it at the tree. It's a good throw, and it should have connected, but it flew away to the side while short of contact, and they all come to the horrible realization that the talismans repel one another, so someone really does physically have to hold it in place. Afira bears down on Patton, and he releases the fairies in his pocket before he becomes Shadow. And the fairies try to pick up the pebble, but the light's so strong that they faint. Uh, meanwhile, everyone's struggling to move because Afira's uh, fear powers are immobilizing them. Not Seth, though. Lena has him grab her hand, and they get the pebble and run to the tree. Patton has to watch helplessly as his wife shakes off Seth and then sacrifices herself to stop this plague. She touches the pebble to the nail at the base of the tree, and she falls down dead. Afira loses her powers and uh, de-ages and everything and then falls to ash, and all the transformed creatures return to their original state. Um, Kurosawa barely appeared in this, and now he's just this weird puddle on the ground. And uh, there's really nothing very triumphant about all this, though, because Broadhoof and Lena are still dead. 
I thought that the idea of the talismans repelling each other as a realistic reason for why somebody has to sacrifice themselves was really yeah. cool because you could just be like, you know, the magic. Right, right. But it's it's basically a magnet. Yes, uh, yeah. A, like forces. That's why they, I was like, that makes um, total sense. Yeah, yeah. like because the opposite of the magnets like repelling each other. It's like, let's make that be a thing here. Yeah, that felt more... Like, I could buy into that. Exactly. More than just being like, just. It has to be like this because. Yeah. The whole Kurosawa just puddling was another thing where I was just kind of. Him and Bathmat just don't appear in this book. (laughs) It was just like, oh, we're done? That's it. Okay. And then, yeah, it just ends with Patton surged to his feet and staggered a few steps before tumbling to the stony ground. He rose again and fell again. Finally, clothes torn and smudged, he proceeded on hands and knees until he reached Lena, pulling her to him and cradling her in his arms, rocking her limp body as he clung to her, shoulders heaving. And it's it's very much a, like, you won, but does it feel like you won? And also for anyone who's like, well, BFD, he gets to go back in time and see her, and he still has his whole life with her, he still just had to watch his wife die. Yeah, and he's still, he's still now aware that when he goes back, no matter what nice things happen with him and his wife. He's not going to be like, well, when I pass, I know that she's going to just, like, die peacefully in her sleep. He's like, I know how she dies, and I am going to always feel like I put her in that Yeah. Place. And there's nothing I can do about that, because it'll happen long after I'm gone. Yeah, the, the way this book played out, it's it kind of feels like that turn that we took in Harry Potter with Azkaban, where it's like, oh, well, I mean, we kind of won the day, but there's still some things that suck. And and then from then yeah. on, it's like, well, strap in, kitties, get used to that. That's good. So yeah. <laughs> the next two books, I feel, are probably going to be pretty rough. Yeah. All right. Do you want to? Yeah. All right. Now? Here we go. Last one. Chapter twenty-four. Goodbyes. Kendra's got really bad survivor's guilt following Lena's death. No one's able to get her out of it until Patton, who tells her that she saved lots of people, and that matters. Other people have told that to her, but it matters more coming from Patton, probably because he loved Lena most out of anybody. He tells her to keep reading his secret journals, that he's written this really, really secret stuff in fairy language, hidden with the Umite candle. Is that Umite or Umite? I don't think we ever figured okay, it out. Okay, whatever. It's that invisibility potion thing. Whatever. He's also spoken to Vanessa and couldn't get anything out of her, and he advises against trusting anything she says. Well, he's going to go back to the past any minute here, so he's heading to the pond to say goodbye to everyone. Uh, He wishes her well, calling her extraordinary, and heads off. When she goes to the house, everyone surprises her with birthday cake. Her birthday's not for a while, but they won't be all together for it, so time to celebrate now. Dugan and the Satters are there, but Dorn and Newell leave the room so he can impart some pretty shitty news. Lost Mesa fell. Charlize got loose and destroyed everything, as did the zombies. The only people who got out alive were Hal and Mara. Also, it's confirmed the Sphinx is a traitor. Happy birthday! Here's a letter from Gavin. After they've eaten cake, Dugan and Warren are taking the kids home. It's still not totally safe, but um, everyone's going to be taking turns guarding the kids uh, while they're away. Coulter takes Kendra aside and tells her that her rain stick is the real deal and something she should hold on to. We end on a heartwarming moment when Kendra opens Gavin's letter and he tells her how much he enjoyed getting to know her and that he's looking forward to his guardian duties. Isn't he like 16? Doesn't he have school too? Whatever. It's a nice letter and he signed it as her friend and admirer. So we'll end our recap on that. 
Yeah, Kendra's all bummed out, and uh, she did not feel ready. After a great loss, after a difficult victory, after suffering extreme trauma, she wished she could have some more time to hibernate. Not two days, two years, some serious time to pull herself together. Why did life always have to roll relentlessly forward? Why was every victory or defeat followed by new worries and new problems? Uh, and for real, though, like, even if you're not dealing with f- fantastic stuff, that's... You always feel like you're just like, if I can just get over this, it'll be smooth sailing. And as soon as you get over that, it's like, but there's always a next thing. There's always something else building. You never really feel like you get a chance to just, like, enjoy being comfortable and happy and safe for any real period of time because something else is always building. Even if it's something small, like, you know, you have bills coming up or something. There's always something pressing down on you in some capacity. Yeah. I, I liked when she goes in and uh, Seth kind of goes like, so did Patton cheer you up? And she's like, yeah. <laughs> and and he goes, yeah, I kind of thought he would. There's nothing that guy can't do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which version of the book is I have the centaur the on the front. Yeah. Does it have like the reading questions and the yeah. book for it? Oh, I forgot okay. to mention this, but I thought it would make you happy. Anytime we went from Fablehaven to Lost Mesa, the illustration changed to which... Yes, indeed! I was like, oh, look at that! They're at Lost Mesa, and there's, like, a little Pueblo there. That's great. The other thing is that after the acknowledgments and the reading guide in mine, uh, it just has scrawled on one page. It says, the world's greatest adventurer was... Yeah, I have that, too. Good job, Pat. You a good man. (laughs) Then we have a sneak peek of the next book in the series, Secrets of... Yeah, which I did not I didn't either. Because we'll tackle that in six months to a year. Right. Okay, so for next month, uh, assuming that this this whole setup ends up actually creating a good enough episode, we're going to read Sorcery and Cecilia, or The Enchanted Chocolate Pot, by Patricia C. Reed and Caroline uh, Stevermeyer. Stevermeyer? Something sure. like that. Uh, but this is... First published in 1988. All right. Hmm. Cool. So we're going to go back a little bit to uh, the time when there was just a Mara and not a Josh. <laughs> I was three, so. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I'm not saying you read it. I'm saying that you existed. <laughs> I don't even think anyone would have read it to me. I was definitely more of a picture book kind of person at that time. Cool. I'm definitely looking forward to more Fable Haven uh, at some point. Yeah, I already uh, ordered the next two books from Powell's, so so oh, nice. I will have them. Cool. So we're going to do our best to keep the regular schedule, one episode a month, and hopefully we'll be in a position where it is uh, safe enough for us to get back to our regular style of recording. But until then, we're just going to do our best. And uh, we thank everybody that is listening and bearing with us while we uh, deal with some weird circumstances. But all of us are dealing with weird circumstances. So be smart and be safe. And thanks for listening. Hello, Fellow Kids is hosted by Mara and Josh, produced by Josh, music provided by Ben Ash. You can visit him at benash.com. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us hfkpodcast at gmail.com. Or check us out on Twitter, Instagram, at HFKPodcast. We are available on almost every uh, podcast catching uh, app or site. And we will do our very best to be back next month. Bye. Bye.